0: With Israel celebrating its 71st Independence Day earlier this month, despite all of its achievements, we still live in a world in which the topic of the Jewish state remains divisive in some circles. It is for that reason that support for Israel in international fora is more important than ever, as is maintaining the relationship between Israel's own Jewish community and its diaspora abroad. These issues are connected. But even putting the issue of political support for Israel aside, it's vital to ensure Israel remains home to all of our Jewish sisters and brothers. Among the various organizations and think tanks working to counter these phenomena is the Institute for National Security Studies, whose various books and papers over the last year have focused on the impact on Israel of political polarization in America and that of the growing rift between the country's Jewish population from those living in the Jewish state. The alignment of the current Israeli government with the Trump administration, they say, may place us in a precarious position come November 2020 or even 2024. I sat down with one of their senior researchers to understand the problem, and more importantly, to understand if there's a solution on the horizon. Does Israel still enjoy bipartisan support in the U.S.? And are diaspora Jews and Israelis really growing further apart? All this and more on today's episode. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Tipping Point, the podcast on all things Israel. I'm your host, Tali Dekel. Remember, you can find all of our previous episodes on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Stitcher. Today, I have the pleasure of hosting Dr. Michal Khatuel Radoshitsky, a research fellow at the INSS and a lecturer at Tel Aviv University. Michal is the contributor of an extensive study called American Jewry and National Security, as well as a paper called The Changing United States, Implications for Israel, This work, and much more, has been shared with the leadership here in Israel, as well as among Jewish communities in the U.S. In the time we have, Michal, I'd like to talk on both. So first of all, thanks for coming on the show. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. So why are these matters of national security? Aren't we talking about pure politics? Wow, not at all.
1: I'll back up a bit and try to explain about the research that you mentioned. We started with a research question that we were asked by the Ruderman Foundation which is, what is the American jury's contribution to Israel's national security? Completely non-political issue, completely within the realms of national security. And during the interview process, we were criticized for the question, why are you looking at the relations in such an asymmetrical matter? Speaking as American jury, why do we have to contribute to Israel's national security to justify this research? And so we realized that it could be political, but from the aspect that we are looking at it, we really wanted to understand the linkage between diaspora jury, and in this instance, American jury, and Israel's national securities. At the end of the day, we found uh, quite a few things. Firstly, in terms of contribution to Israel's national security. And at the end of the day, I do think that it's an important question, even if it's a very functional question, and even if there's a lot of criticism on the very functional, practical outlook of this matter. But I think it's also important to explain to the Israeli public, and this is something that should be said, because this uh, research was published in Hebrew, and it was conducted based on the perceptions of uh, Israelis in the Israeli society of these relations. At the end of the day, when we look at the contributions, first we see a direct contribution in uh, philanthropy, which is the very basic and tangible level. Uh, American jury contributes to Israel financially. We've seen that changing over the years as well. So less to uh, hospitals and state institutions and more to uh, civil society more sectorial contributions to back up or strengthen specific uh, perceptions and groups
0: within Israeli society. Has that trend, though, gone up or down in general over the years? Yes,
1: I think it's, it's upped over the years. Hmm. And uh, not necessarily the, the amount of the contribution, but the channel The choice to fund specific goals that are in line with the donor's perceptions rather than contributing to the general federation and in the federation will channel funds elsewhere. So philanthropy is perhaps the most tangible and readily perceived contribution. But other than that, on perhaps the more indirect level, we have the contribution of American jury to strengthening the Israel-U.S. bilateral relations. And it's very difficult to say here this is the contribution or this isn't the contribution. But in general, we can see that American jury assists Israel in public opinion, that is vis-a-vis Americans in bringing the issue of Israel to to the table. In, through legislation? Uh, not necessarily through legislation, but um, through initiating relationships, businesses, investments, and so forth. Legislation, perhaps, but uh, this is perhaps more of a, of a complex issue. We can look at legislation and see how many Jewish people, or but we, we didn't want to go to that direction. Also, to avoid kind of a conspiracy theories, mm. it's a
0: very explosive issue. Right. There's already one book on that. So. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Don't need more. But we do see, and this is general, that the Jewish community within the United States, their contribution to American society is much larger than their proportion in American society. As is philanthropy among Jews in general. Yes, that's true. So that is perhaps the second contribution, which, again, is more indirect. And the third contribution, which is, again, indirect and perhaps is another step linked to the first indirect contribution that I mentioned, is American juries' assistance to Israel vis-a-vis the perception of Israel's strength or Israel's power in the international arena. Because of the contribution to Israel American or Israel U.S. bilateral relations, we see that in other parts of the world, Israel perceived as a very strong state. So even we even call it in some areas of the world reverse anti-Semitism, where people think that because the people are uh, part of the Jewish community, they have relations or they can assist in uh, knocking on the president's door. Now, in many times, this is completely untrue. But it's that kind of aura Mm -hmm. around the Jewish community in the United States as contributing to Israel in general, uh, in international fora, not necessarily related to the truth or to what Jewish people can necessarily do. Again, that's why it can even be perceived as a kind of
0: anti-Semitism. How is that manifested, though? Like through which activities does that occur?
1: It's very intangible. It's very difficult to quantify. But we can say that the strong relationship between Israel and the United States, part of which is strengthened and contributed to by the thriving Jewish community in the United States, resonates far wider than the United States. Okay? It influences and impacts and contributes to Israel's image as a power state in the international arena. I think that best defines the idea. All
0: right. Let's turn to the issue of bipartisan support of Israel. How serious is the fear that uh, a democratic administration will completely overturn American policy towards Israel? Are we not being a little bit dramatic?
1: Okay. Firstly, we are. Being a little bit dramatic, in my opinion, I don't think that that is the case. But because I am a researcher and I don't speak on what I feel, I speak on what I read and uh, the statistics that I'm aware of, I'll say the following. We saw a poll earlier this year, I think it was during March, I think it was published in March, a Pew poll, that related to the support for Israel in the United States Now, that support, on the face of it, if you look at the surface, everything looks great. 59% of Americans in support of Israel, as opposed to 29% in support of the Palestinians. At the outset, maybe I'll say, I don't like this zero-sum game. You're either in support of the Israelis Mm -hmm. or the Palestinians. But I'm I'm referring to the poll now. But if you scratch under the surface, you see that the support vis-a-vis Israel is declining over the years. And the support, and it's at a low point, 59% is is a lot, but it's at a low point. And the support for the Palestinians has upped. And the 21% support for Palestinians is the greatest support since the turn of the century. So if we don't look at the statistics today, but we look at the tendencies, or if we look at the trends, we see a bit of a different picture. If we continue to dig into these findings, we'll see that there is a decline in the support for Israel in both parties, both the Democratic and the Republican parties. And if we continue to dig, we see that there is a bigger divide between pro- and anti-Israel stances, between the Democratic and the Republican parties. So we're seeing a widening uh, gap between the parties. That's at the outset. Now, I'm now uh, referring to your question regarding the Democratic Party. So if we see, if we take a look at what's happening in the Democratic Party, we see, firstly, you can't not see or you can't not speak about sentences or sayings or statements by Congresswomen, the new Congresswoman, uh, that have entered uh, American politics further to the last November elections. I don't know if, if I even need to repeat, mm-hmm. um, uh, Rashida Tlaib, who said after a vote in Congress opposing a boycott that uh, the people who voted should think which country they are uh, loyal to. Uh, loyal right. to. Mm-hmm. And then we had It's All About the Benjamins Mm -hmm. Baby. And then we had another one from uh, Omar who said that uh, she wants to discuss the political culture in the country, that it's okay to pledge allegiance to a foreign country. And, of course, taken together, these three statements and each one as a standalone is uh, problematic and has a... Or, uh, again, a kind of a whiff of uh, anti-Semitism, Jews, uh, money, controlling the world, controlling politics, controlling American politics, and so forth. That is, of course, very problematic. And that we saw the outrage and we saw what happened vis-a-vis the Jewish community, the internal Democratic Party in the United States. But what we also saw is how President Trump cleverly utilized these developments to speak about a Jexodus and about Jews who traditionally vote for the Democratic Party leaving the Democratic Party, which is, again, this is why he used the term Jexodus. It wasn't a term that he invented, uh, but he certainly knew how to plug into that for his own political purposes. Of course, we have no evidence of a Jexodus, and we don't know if there will be a Jexodus in the next elections. And this links me to my third point. Which we
0: actually saw in the Labour Party in exactly, England, yes, people actually leaving the Labour Party because of these kinds of developments. Yes,
1: so when I speak to Americans and I ask them about the Labour Party and about anti-Semitism in Europe, the feeling is to again, I haven't spoken to all Americans, but these are the people that that I've spoken to. What I, the impression that I received is that we are nowhere near Mm. Europe. Our institutions don't have uh, guards outside. The anti-Semitism is not the same. We are nowhere near the Labour Party and so forth. But again, we're flagging this here, maybe because we have a bit of a different perspective because we... See both the UK and the US from the outside, so we can kind of point towards similarities. And I suppose that if you're in the United States, it's perhaps more difficult to see. And perhaps it's really not the same situation. But it's something that, from the outside, it definitely strikes you. Mm-hmm. And this links me to the third point, which is the 2020 elections. So you speak about Jexodus, You have statements by anti. You can. I think it's okay to say anti-Israel or uh, yeah, anti-Israel, pro BDS. Congresswoman, and taken together, and I'll even refer to Trump's own statement, who said at some stage that if the Democrats win the next elections, Israel will be left out there or something to that effect, which is is very problematic. If Israel will become an issue in the 2020 elections, it certainly won't be good for Israel in general and vis-a-vis national
0: security issues. Do you see it coming up as an issue in the 2020 elections? I think it's early to say if, if I, I think I can certainly
1: take a number of occurrences and point to a challenge in that respect. We haven't seen the campaign being launched or anything more specific, but, I, but we can see different uh, statements by different leaders that Israel is an issue.
0: Right. I mean, we'll also be much smarter, you know, a few months from now yes. once the, the peace plan is revealed and whatever ends up happening with that. Definitely. So having said that, having brought those examples of the congresswomen, um I mean, you, you don't even need to go to elected officials to see what's going on in the progressive camp. You can even talk about other influential political activists like uh, Linda Sarsour. What can Israel do to actually empower the moderate voices within the liberal camp, in your opinion.
1: Okay. So even before I speak about what Israel can do, perhaps why this is important for Israel. Okay. So two things. One is there will be a day after Trump. I don't know if that day will be sooner or later, but there will be that day. And what is happening to Israel at the moment is that Israel is very aligned with Trump policies. Now, a good relationship between the Israeli prime minister and the U.S. president is a wonderful thing. The thing is that if we are too much aligned with the president's policies, we need to think of other arenas where this can be problematic to Israel now, and perhaps with Europe and others, China, and going forward, like I said, the day after Trump. So that's one issue. The second issue is... Israel's relations with the United States Jewish community. Already the relations are strained. We looked at three axes and we actually said that the relations are strained on three axes. One is vis-a-vis religiosity. Israel's establishment is uh, orthodox and we can see that the orthodox way of life is imposed on the state. The second is the values. So we see that Israeli society is becoming more tribal greater endorsement in particular values, whereas American Jewish community is more universal, tikkun olam and so forth. And finally, the third axis is the political axis. And here we see divergence vis-a-vis the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, vis-a-vis the two-state solution, and so forth. So the second point in this respect is what these relations with Trump or with the current American administration's why they relevant not only for the day after, but also why they are impacting Israel's relations with American Jewish community. So these kind of relations with President Trump will strain the relations between Israel and American Jewish community, given that the American Jewish community, at least 70 percent, vote Democratic. Mm-hmm. And Israel is, again, very much aligned with a Republican administration or a Republican president. So having said that about why this poses a problem to Israel going forward, what can Israel do? And now I'm getting to your question. Sorry about the long way it took me to, <laughs> to answer this. If we speak about what Israel can do. So one thing Israel can do is avoid interference in internal American issues. And certainly, I don't think it's a problem now with internal American issues, but I'm saying this with uh, I set forward to the 2020 elections. So perhaps as opposed to what happened here, where Trump gave uh, Netanyahu a great present in the form of announcing
0: that the Golan Heights is part of Israel, which is... He's not the first American president to express opinions about... In elections period, Mm. it's
1: it's a great present. And of course, I welcome it. But the question is if it's uh, geared towards changing Israeli public opinion. So... I wouldn't advise Israel to to go that way and interfere in internal issues in the 2020 elections. That's one. The second thing is that I think there should be stronger communication channels between Israel and between the Democratic Party. So not only with Republicans or with the Republican Party or with Republican institutions, but again, trying to return Israel to be a bipartisan issue. That is the second thing. The third thing would be to strengthen cooperation with young liberal audiences and constituencies in the United States, the Afro-American constituency, Hispanics, and so forth. And the fourth would be to engage in dialogue and joint endeavors with the American Jewish community in order to try and mend these very big gaps that I spoke about. And finally... And this is an internal, very internal thing here in Israel. But I think very important that decisions taken by our policymakers here in Israel must be inclined towards understanding, testing, thinking about the larger arena. And I'm talking about internal decisions and foreign policy decisions. How do decisions taken in Israel resonate in the international arena in general and with the very important American Jewish community in particular.
0: Okay, so you've said a lot, (laughs) and I have a lot to ask about a lot of those points, so I'll go backwards so that it it makes sense to everyone who's listening. Given the last thing that you said, to what extent should Israel take world Jewry into consideration in regards to its domestic policy, when anyone who follows the understanding of how a democracy works and how elections work and who you vote for and why you vote for them, the first commitment of an elected leader should be to its constituent and not to the other 7 million Jews abroad or
1: in general. Excellent question. Excellent question. And, And this is my answer. Israel is not the homeland of the Israeli people. Israel, by definition, and the way that we see Israel, Israel is the homeland of the Jewish people. Almost half of the Jewish people around the world are concentrated in Israel, and the other half, almost half, is concentrated in the United States. Now, if you have legislation, for example, I'll, be, I'll try to be as concrete as I can. If you have legislation that bans a person like Laura El qasim from entering Israel because of whatever the law says, okay? The law says that you can't enter Israel because in the past you was a BDS activist and so forth. And I'll I'll correct myself. The the law doesn't say the past. The law says that existing current BDS activists cannot enter Israel. But then we had this whole saga with Laurel Qasem, right, with the newspapers and then the different uh, um, courts that she appealed in and so Mm -hmm. forth. During those appeals... The, the whole saga was covered extensively, okay, much to ma- a much greater um, level than if she would have just been allowed to enter. Around the whole Laurel custom debate, Jews everywhere, not only in America, but Jews everywhere, specifically students who go to campuses and these issues uh, surface and are debated, experience um, some kind of uh, difficulty. A challenge, okay? Not to say that in in certain instances you see anti-Semitism and things that are... I'm not justifying them in any way. I'm not saying that it's okay. But I'm saying let's not fuel these things so that at the end of the day, they affect Jews everywhere. You know, when Israel uh, creates policies, and I'm sure that the people who decided that people like Laura Al-Qasim can't enter Israel had good intentions in mind. But they didn't necessarily – the people who are in the front lines of fighting BDS aren't in Israel. They're in the U.S. They're in the different communities all over the world. So when you enforce legislation about BDS activists coming to Israel, you know what? Consult with them first because if this legislation backlashes, they are going to be the people in the front countering these claims. And in that sense, I'm saying that even when you legislate rules or laws that apply specifically to Israel, and this is a very good example because every country is sovereign to decide who enters its borders. Fine, 100%. But this has repercussions for Jewish communities all over the world. And that is why I'm not saying that the the, uh, prime minister should serve them No, but he needs to take into account how the legislation will resonate elsewhere outside of Israel.
0: Okay. Another thing you mentioned was a suggestion to reach out to minority groups across the U.S. to kind of bring them back in in terms of strengthening strengthening support for Israel. How does the whole issue of intersectionality come into this? I mean, it doesn't necessarily look like we have a lot, you know, to gain, because it looks like we're losing from the get-go. From the get-go, you have, you know, groups that naturally, it would be very strange to see members of the LGBT community being supported by groups that support Hamas and terrorism in other ways, but yet they seem to get along when it comes to anti-Israel. How can we actually reach out to those groups in in an effective way?
1: I think that When we speak about intersectionality, the idea of intersectionality is a positive thing. It's a good thing. Intersectionality, the idea that you can that firstly a person has a lot of identities, we not only one thing. And that we can interlink with one another because of the different beliefs and our different identities and so forth, and that this is a complex world and the complex reality and all that's perfect. What we see in intersectionality vis a vis Israel, and specifically we refer to it in the book as well, but also in the article that you refer to, is that we see Minority groups now, and I want to here emphasize that Jews in the United States are, are a also a minority group, <laughs> right. but Jews in, in the United States are not perceived as a minority group, and that is the problem. And um, what we, w- when we speak about intersectionality, we speak of the linkages between uh, different minority groups, LGBT, like you said, Black Lives Matter, for example, and many other groups. That what unites them is their, I think in some, in some instances, hate for Israel. Maybe in other instances, just objection or antagonism towards Israel. And what we, from my interviews with student activists in the different campuses in the United States, it's much more difficult for them, for pro-Israel activists, to be able to form coalitions with other groups. And that is, that is a problem We need to ask why this is happening. Why are Jews perceived not as a minority group? Why is Israel perceived in such a negative way that does not enable uh, larger coalitions other than just the very pro-Israel groups to advocate for Israel?
0: So there's a lot of work to be done inside Israel as well. I want to get one uh, big topic also out of the way before we before we finish because we're running out of time. Congress actually failed to condemn anti-Semitism independently a few months ago despite massive efforts uh, by the Jewish community to achieve such legislation. I'm not sure how, how much you guys deal with this, but obviously these issues are connected. Is this not some sort of wake-up call for the Jewish community in the United States that there is a real problem within the political system that they are part of? It's an interesting question.
1: At the outset, Congress did object to anti-Semitism, but together with Islamophobia.
0: And xenophobia in general.
1: Exactly. Right? Okay, now, and I think this plugs into the former question regarding intersectionality. It's not just anti-Semitism. There's a whole range of things, and it's okay. At the end of the day, it's not a bad thing, and I, I don't think any of us are against objecting to Islamophobia. Of course not. But this shines a light on decision-making processes in the United States. And here I'm plugging into your current question. If until now we always said, no, anti-Semitism, it's marginal or anti-Israel, BDS, it's very grassroots. And now we're seeing how two congresswomen, for example, there there could be others, and I'm referring to them because they're very outspoken in their uh, words regarding Israel, how they have shifted the decision-making process. And how Democrats were unable to say further to the the uh, rage, the outrage, further to Omar's words, we are now going to condemn anti-Semitism. No, it has to be the condemnation of all things. And at the end, it, it was. It was um,
0: at the end, it's an achievement for her. It's an
1: achievement, exactly. <laughs> it was it was shown as an achievement for her because it's the first time that Congress objected to Islamophobia. Mm-hmm. So the end result now is not a problem because we are also, of course, against Islamophobia. But the problem is, and I think that you insinuated to this in your words, what is happening here on the larger level vis-a-vis decision-making processes? And look how the fringes, and I, in no way am I implying that uh, Omar and Rashida Tlaib are the majority Again, let's go back to the 59% support for Israel, okay? But we're seeing still how the the fringes are able to shift the discourse or are able to influence decision-making processes. And this is something that we certainly need to consider going forward. So it's not only anti-Semitism,
0: but it's also the larger Israel issue. So we've had American guests on our show talking about these issues. Uh, One of them was former U.S. ambassador to Israel, Dan Kurtzer. Listeners can scroll down to episode 109 to hear that. We also spoke to JTA editor-in-chief, Andrew Silo-Carroll, on episode 19. And we asked them both what Israelis need to understand better about the American Jewish community. I want to ask you the opposite. As an Israeli, what don't American Jews get about Israel? Okay, wow. That's a good question. I think that...
1: What American Jews should understand, and that's perhaps difficult to understand when you're not living here, is that Israelis are dealing with very tangible security threats. If it's Hezbollah from the north, if it's tunnels being dug under Israeli sovereign territory in the north, if it's Gaza from the south, if it's stabbings in the West Bank, and this changes a society's outlook on universal values, on the ability to reach peace with the Palestinians. It really is difficult to to understand and to grasp it when you're not living here. And I think that the sooner that the American Jewish community will understand this and how this influences Israeli voters' decision-making processes and the vote, it will be easier for us to speak on eye level. And another thing, unfortunately, that influences the Israeli voter is the paradigm that the world is against us. And I think more than anything, if BDS is successful, BDS is not successful in boycotting Israel or in isolating Israel in any way, but what, it, what they do manage to do, very unfortunately, is to... Give Israelis who are looking for it the proof that everyone hates Israel, that the world is anti-Semitic, that we are forced to, there's a biblical uh, saying in uh, in Hebrew, we are forced to live on our sword because everyone just wants to hate us and kill us. And we can cite BDS for it, for example, and global anti-Semitism and these developments. And I think that influences the Jewish psyche probably more than it can influence people who are living outside of
0: Israel. Hasn't the Jewish psyche been influenced by Jews being persecuted for millennia, regardless of Israel's existence? Definitely,
1: definitely. But we're also seeing the erosion of the memory of the Holocaust, this most particularly, not so much in Israel, but in, among diaspora Jewry. Right. And Israel is perceived as a very strong and powerful nation. We're not where we were tens of years mm-hmm. ago, and I think that even labeling BDS, dismissing BDS completely as anti-Semitism, it's part of that psyche of uh, we are a persecuted people. So in the in 1930s it was the Nazis, not at all, not at all,
0: the German uh, Bundestag last mm-hmm. week. Said that BDS tactics were reminiscent of uh, Nazi tactics during the certainly,
1: and they certainly are. I don't think that BDS is a non-violent group. I don't propose mixing up BDS with a pro-two-state solution group or a pro—not even a pro-Palestinian group. They more than anything, they're an anti-Israel group. What I am saying is that the psyche of being a persecuted people is strengthened by initiatives like. BDS and when we when Israelis go to vote in
0: many, many instances this is what they have in mind. Fair enough, okay <laughs> Dr. Mikhail Khatuel Radoshitsky, research fellow at the INSS and lecturer at Aviv University it was such a pleasure having you on the show Thank you for having me. Thanks. I'm Talia Deco, this has been Tipping Point and I look forward to our next episode.